So it's good to be back at uh, Westminster Press here in uh, Corvallis. And um, today you have the added blessing that my wife Sally is along with me. And um, so I'll tell you a story about her uh, that reflects well on her. Relax, okay. So I, she was with me and we were in a chapel service at a seminary and the homiletics professor was there and Sally had never met him. And, and we happened to be in the same place at the same time. And I said, Dr. Smith, I'd like to introduce you to my better 50% Sally. And he looked at her and he looked at me and he said, brother, she is your better 75%. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, any man that would argue with that is a fool, right? <laughs> but in my case, that's actually true. So uh, anyway, you'll meet her and you'll be, meet the better 75%. Um, this, uh, all of this is tied together, so if you think the Old Testament lesson is just filler before we get to the other, don't think that, okay? It's all tied together. And I want to read from 1 Samuel 17. Um, and um, this is a very familiar story, the story of David and Goliath <clears throat> that took place in the Ella Valley in uh, Israel. And um, before I begin reading, I want to have a prayer uh, for illumination. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you for your word. Make it be uh, what Jeremiah called a hammer. Um, make it be what the psalmist called a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Uh, help us, Lord, as James said, to receive the word implanted to the salvation of our souls. And Lord, if there are any that have never had the word implanted into them, I pray that you'd be merciful and touch them and open their eyes and help them to see Jesus and use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the title of the sermon today is The Champion of Our Salvation. And uh, I'll get clearer on this later, but in this passage, David is the champion of the salvation of Israel. Okay, I'll get clearer on that later, but just to uh, tell you where, why we're here. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle line against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? 
Am I not a Philistine and you are not servants of, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. For he is a, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And you know the rest of the story, I'm sure. Uh, the youngest of the brothers, David, stepped up and said, I'll do it. And everybody said, you can't do it. And he said, well, I'll go against him in the name of God. And he slew the champion of the Philistines. That's great, great news. Now in Hebrews 2, in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, <clears throat> Philippians, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews 2 at verse 10, we'll read consecutively through verse 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise." Again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might come, become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when, he, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Amen. And then to Exodus 13. Again, a very familiar passage in Exodus 13. Um, this is when the Egyptian army and Pharaoh, the leader of that army, are drowned in the Red Sea. God parts the waters. His people go through on dry ground. And then the water comes over the following Egyptians, the Egyptians who are following the people of Israel, and they are all drowned. And I want to read the last two verses of chapter 13, 21 and 22, and then chapter 14. Hear now again the Word of God, 13, Exodus 13 at 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. So they've come out of Israel initially. They're going into the wilderness. 
You would expect them to go up the short route, which would be following the Mediterranean Sea and go straight up to the land of the Philistines, to the Promised Land, but God says, no, let's take a little detour here, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pehaharoth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephron. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped by the sea at Pihiharoth in front of Baal-Zephron. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us, done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. 
all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved that day from the hand of the Egyptians, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. Amen. Grass withers, the flowers have faded away, but the Word of God will not fade. It will abide forever and forever. So God had told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He had told them that He was going to take them out of Egypt and go into a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Pharaoh is opposing the will of God. That puts Pharaoh in a bad place. That puts Pharaoh in a very, very bad place. And so I want to look at this text under the thought of that God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is the champion of our salvation. What is a champion? The most common thought that I think all of us um, would have with the word champion is a winner, right? Who's going to be the champion of the Pac-12? Who's going to be the champion of the National Football League and win the Super Bowl? Who's going to be the champion of the World Series? Well, we know that one, right? The Rangers won. Who's going to be the champion of the Rose Bowl? Who's the winner? But in the dictionary, winner is the fourth definition. Really? Huh. Another definition in the dictionary is a warrior or a fighter. So we think of the heavyweight champion in, in boxing. Okay, but another, another dictionary definition of champion is a militant advocate or defender. So Aslan fought, right, for Narnia. And Frodo fought, fought for Middle Earth. A militant advocate or defender. One who fights for another's rights and honor a representative. William Wallace and Robert the Bruce fought for the freedom of Scotland. Uh, they were champions. David, in the Ella Valley in 1 Samuel 17, was the champion. So Goliath came out. He's the champion. He's the representative. He's the militant fighter for the Philistines. And he says, send out your champion. And the Philistine champion and the Israelite champion are going to fight, and it's a winner-take-all. 
And so he did. And so he lost. <laughs> he got a stone right there. And he killed over dead. And David took the sword out and cut his head off. God, as Israel is crossing the sea and drowning the Egyptians, is the champion of his people. He's winning their salvation, winning their freedom by the destruction of their enemies. He is, we would say, championing their cause. Yeah, championing their cause. Now in Hebrews, I read uh, Hebrews 2, and the word champion is not there in the English translations, but a word that should be champ ch translated champion is there in the Greek. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation. The Greek word is archegos, and is better translated, the champion of their salvation. God was pleased to make the champion of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then when he gets further down in the passage, it says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver. So through the champion of our salvation, he would destroy and deliver. Well, that's kind of what happened in, in Exodus 13 and 14, isn't it? He destroyed and he delivered. Isn't that what happened in 1 Samuel 7? He destroyed and he delivered. Oh, well, it's this pattern. That's this pattern. I was at, by the way, if you wonder about that, I was lecturing at the Greek Bible College in suburban Athens, Greece, and those guys, they got a leg up on all of us to know Greek, right? So I said to them, I took them to Hebrews 2, and I said, this word archegos, uh, how would you translate it? And they were kind of huddled in the back of the room. I couldn't understand the word they were saying. And I said, would you think champion is a good translation? He said, that's what we're about to say. I said, whew, okay, I'm glad for that. Yeah, it's the champion of our salvation. He's the one that takes on the enemy for us and wins. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? That's good news. That's very good news. I'll get more clear on how that fits Jesus in a minute. Let's look at the text. I'm, I'm supposed to preach the text, and I'm going to preach the text. I'm preaching three tracks right now, but... Let's look at Exodus 14, and, and I want to give you some, some, some ways to hang your, places to hang your hat. The first thing that happens in Exodus 14 is that, that Pharaoh is baited. He's baited, right? Because God gives these directions. I, 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 tip, I tip, uh, tipped my hand earlier. He said, God said, look, the normal way would be to go this way, but guys, don't go that way. Turn around and go this way. Because he knew that Pharaoh's intel would get word that they were wandering in the wilderness. And, and a, actually, one time years ago when I was preaching through the book of Exodus, I, I, follow, I traced it around, and God kind of had them going in circles for a while. It's, it, it's interesting. I think he wanted to see if, if they would follow the cloud wherever it led. But what happens, and they turn back, they become sitting ducks for Pharaoh, right? They become sitting ducks for Pharaoh. It's as if the getaway car circled back to the scene of the crime. Yeah, we're getting away, but oh, you want us to go back? Pharaoh can see us, he's going to come. And God would say, that's exactly what I want to happen. Okay. So then God makes a prediction that that's going to happen. 
that he sees that they're lost. He thinks they're lost. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're confused. The prediction is that Pharaoh will pursue them, and he does. And then God promises power, power over Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I don't have a time today to go into hardening, but this kind of thing is mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's a real thing, and it's a dreaded thing, and we should fear in, in, in the sense of plead with, that God would never harden our hearts. But God's very clear in verse 4 what His purposes are. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's His purpose, right? To reveal Himself, to reveal Himself in glory. That's why if you're saved, uh, you're going to go to heaven someday to see the glory of God and be able to glorify God and worship God. So, so Pharaoh's baited in the first four verses. And then in verses uh, 5 through 9, Pharaoh bites. <laughs> he bites the bait, right? He does. He just bites the bait. He has what I'm, I'm coining a term. You know what seller's remorse is, don't you? Uh, or buyer's remorse, either one. You sell something, you think, oh, I messed up, or buy, I bought it, I shouldn't have bought it. Well, he has releaser's remorse. That's what he's got. He's got releaser's remorse. What have we done? For crying out loud, we let all our, 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 our workers go away. We were stupid. We've got to go get them back. And so he prepares his army in verses 6 and 7. And by the way, this is probably, probably the finest army in the world at that time, Pharaoh's army. He mentions, it mentions his, his chosen chariots and all his other chariots, you know, that's his latest model of his Abrams tanks. And then the old model of his Abrams tanks, you know, he's got the, the new ones and the old ones, the, the new chariots and the old chariots. And it's all his infantry. And, and it was the practice of the Egyptian kings, the pharaohs, to go to war with their people. So he goes too. And his heart is hardened by God in verse 8. And he pursues. And, and it says in uh, verse 8 that, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Um, better translation there might be by high or a mighty hand, um, but it's no big deal there, okay? It's, Pharaoh should have known better, right? Why? Well, think what happened with all this stuff back at the Nile with the plagues of locusts and plagues of this and the Nile turning into blood and the death angel going, over the, going through the camp on the night of the Passover, and you think, Pharaoh... He didn't get it, man. No, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. And he's going to get it. That's what's going to happen. So Pharaoh pursues and overtakes them. Now the word pursue is an interesting Hebrew word. It can mean to persecute. I'm actually going to preach about persecution of Christians tonight. But um, it can, the Hebrew word itself can mean to pursue in order to overtake. It, mean, it can mean to pursue with hostile purpose. It can mean to chase or hunt. Yeah, that fits. That fits. And so what does Israel do? Oh, good, God's going to help us. No, they grumble. They're kind of like you and me, right? They grumble. They grumble. They grumble against the Lord. They grumble against His spokesman. If you read chapters 15 and 16 and 17, you find Israel grumbling and, and many other places as well. And, and the cause of their grumbling is fear without faith. Fear of the Egyptians without faith in God. At the end of chapter 14, they'll have fear of God and faith in God. It says that at the end of 
the, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in, they, they had faith in the Lord and His servant Moses. But here, it's fear without faith. And they're overwhelmed by the appearances. They're overwhelmed by what they're facing, right? Pharaoh and his army are more real to them than God. The God that's got this cloud up there that at the nighttime it's fiery and the daytime it leads them around. The God that they just seen destroy uh, the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but he's not very real to them at this moment. They think their problems are bigger than God's ability and will to help them. You know, Jesus, that, that the leper, wasn't it, said, Lord, if Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So there's, there's the, the ability and the will, and they doubt both of those, I guess. I don't know. And they see only two options. They see only two options, slavery in Egypt or death in the desert. That's all they see. That's all they see, De slavery in Egypt or death in the desert. And they need to learn, we need to learn, that their immediate circumstances are not the final standard to use to judge God and His work. Right? Our immediate circumstances are not the standard to use. That's not the, the, the final outcome is not in our immediate circumstances. Um, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or Egyptian army? I added that one, of course. Can the Egyptian army separate them from the love of God? In all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the, a little earlier than where I started reading in chapter 13, when, they, when the Egyptians left, left Egypt, they took with them Joseph's bones because Joseph had said, don't put my bones in Egypt. I'm a son of the promise. Take my bones to the promised land. He was that confident that God would get them there. And there's a great contrast between Joseph's faith, I think, and Israel's lack of, of faith. And so they cry out, we're going to die. We'd rather have died in Egypt. They know how to bury people in Egypt, you know, the mummies and things. They know how to bury people there. We would rather die there than die here. And they blame Moses and they blame, blame God. And if you're in leadership, you know how lonely leadership is, and they're experiencing that right here. That's a, that's a very um, instructive situation in the life of King David where um, when he's being chased by Saul um, um, and, and his, uh, this, this rabble army he had with him, uh, they're, they're attacked by the Philistines and all their wives and children are taken away. And it said the people thought about stoning David. It's in 1 Samuel 30 at verse 6, and it says, And David strengthened himself in the Lord. And if you're in any kind of Christian leadership, you will know that there are times that come, that is the only place to strengthen yourself, is strengthen yourself in the Lord. And, 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 and that's what Moses is going to have to do here, right? Because they're blamed, he's getting blamed. Um, and, and, and so the question is, where to die, that's what they're worried about. But they're also worried about, 
whom to serve. They say, we would rather serve the Egyptians in Egypt. We would rather never left. Really? Talk about a failure of faith. It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So they're crying out because of a frowning providence. What are you, you crying out to God today? I don't know the providence facing all of you. Um, you could be. Think about these things if you are. So they're baited. Egypt's baited. The, Israel, the Egyptian army's baited, and 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 then they bite and 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 they grumble. And now Moses' response comes to us in verses thirteen and fourteen, and he says, "Fear not, stand firm." And he says that on the basis this exhortation, "Fear not, stand firm," is is on the basis of an expectation that God will act to save His people, that God will act in accordance with the promises He made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The Lord will fight for you, in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will be your champion. The Lord will fight for you. And after today, you will never see the Egyptians again. Now, think about that, okay? You're, you're, you're in this group of Israelites, and your back is to the wall. There's a wall of water behind you, and there's the Egyptian army in front of you. And Moses says, hey, God says you're going to never see the Egyptian army again. You think, yeah, mm-hmm, sure. But they didn't. They didn't. Who are our enemies? I could list a lot of them, but I can tell you I know what your ultimate, who your ultimate enemy is. Death. That's their ultimate enemy. Death, right? I'm 74, I think about it. <laughs> Some of you may be older than me, but you think about it, I know you do. That's your ultimate enemy, right? Sure. In Revelation chapter 20, at verse 14, it says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. If death is my ultimate enemy, and someday death is going to be destroyed in the, in the, in the lake of fire, there's some strong parallels, don't you think, between that and what's happening here? Because they're, the, the thing they're worried about is the thing that we worry about. They're going to die. Now, theirs is thinking it's going to happen right now. I get it. But that's what we're worried about. But God says, you don't have to be worried about that because my son died in your place. He took the death you deserve, going to give you the life that he should have kept. So he rebukes their, their lack of faith. He says, be silent. All you have to do is the Lord fights for you. You have only to be silent. And, and I think that's not saying, now, now calm down, be calm, you got it. You know, just I think this is actually a rebuke. Be silent. Be silent before the awesome God. 
The Lord's going to fight for, for all of us who are Christ followers. Colossians 2 verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, dis he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Truly, He is the champion of our salvation, right? Yeah. So God takes charge. You know the story from verses 15 and on. And so the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Tell them to stop crying and get on with it. And he says, lift up your staff. Could be the staff of God that, he, that was used back in, 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 in Egypt, you know, to part the... I mean, to touch the, 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 the Nile. And, and hold your hand over the sea. The sea's going to divide. My people go through in dry ground. I'll harden the heart of the Philistines, and they'll go in after the Israelites. And God's main purpose is again restated in verses 17 and 18. I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, his chariots and his horsemen. I'm going to sink all his tanks in the sea. I'm going to sink all his people in the sea. I'm going to sink Pharaoh in the sea, all his horsemen, all his infantry, all of his army. I'm going to sink them in the sea. And then the Egyptians back home will know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh and over his chariots and over his horsemen. That's the plan. And then he works the plan. Now there are people, you can find this in the old literature, liberals used to say, because liberals hate miracle. Um, they, they try to take all the miracles out of the Bible, and there's a long story of that going back to at least a, a German liberal named Friedrich Schleiermacher. And, and um, so one of the ways the liberals reacted to this passage is they said, well, you know, the reason they were able to go through it, God didn't part the waters, you know. It was just only six inches deep. To which the conservative scholars said, well, did the Egyptian army drown in six inches of water? Oh, we never thought of that. It's unbelievable. So, God is between... Did you notice that? God is between His people. Look at, look at verse 19. Then the angel of the Lord, angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. Um, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. This is... If I was going to give a, a title to this part of the text, it would be, God's got their back. <laughs> God has got their back. I mean, He's really got their back. He moves, he moves so that He is between them and, the, and, and their enemy. And, 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 and so then the sea parts and Israel goes through on dry, land, dry ground. And it's a bit amazing. They've been, Moses, you know, was saved from the waters of the Nile. They're saved from the waters of the Red Sea. The Egyptians are, quote, in over their heads, right? They panic, the wheels of their chariots clog, they realize the Lord is fighting for them, and they die. They dry in the sea for attempting to drown Israelite children in the Nile, I think. And Israel sees the dead Egyptians on the, on the seashore. And that's both confirmation and assurance and promotes God's glory. Because as they looked at that, those dead Egyptians on the seashore, they would have probably been thinking, except for the grace of God, that would be us. If God had let the Egyptian army catch up with us, that would be us. We'd all be dead here along the seashore 
of the Red Sea. That's amazing. It's really amazing. I think we'll, I think, I think we'll meet some of these people someday, you know. Wouldn't you love to hear that story? Tell me about the time you were with your back to the sea and the Egyptian army was coming to you. And they'll say, God had our back. I say, yeah, he did. So there's this summary at verse 30. Uh, God, it says uh, at verse 30, So God saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great power of God. Now, one of the principles you will have been taught, I hope, but if you haven't, you need to hear it again, hear it for the first time. The salvation of God's people and the destruction of God's enemies are just two sides of one coin in the Scriptures. It's two sides of one coin. Always when God's people are saved, God's enemies are destroyed. You see that in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 where Jesus comes back on a white horse with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth and He slays His, his enemies. You see it here. Uh, you see it in David's life, uh, for instance. And you see it in Jesus because of that passage in, in Hebrews 2 I read. He, 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 by the death of Jesus, He destroyed him who has the power of death, that is the devil. So in the death of Jesus, which saves the people of God, the death of Jesus also destroyed the devil who had the power of death. And so you find these things uh, going on at exactly the same time. And so the Israelites respond rightly and they fear the Lord and have faith in Him. Friends, God is a great warrior. God is a great champion. When they celebrate in chapter 15 at verse 3, after this great destruction of the Israelite army, the salvation of the people of God, they said, the Lord is a man of war. He's a great warrior. He's a great champion. You see glimpses of it in in, in David in the Ella Valley against Goliath. You see it there. You see it at the conquest when, when, when Joshua leads the people uh, across the river, again, a parting of water, into, uh, into the, the promised land and, and defeats their enemies. Uh, Deuteronomy 1 talks about that. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight for you as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. So they see God as a champion coming out of Egypt. They see God as a champion going in the promised land. They see God as a champion in the conquest between David and Goliath. You see God as a champion at Mount Carmel when Elijah is fighting the prophets of Baal, and he destroys 400 of the prophets of Baal. You see, God is your champion in the death of Jesus Christ. You see, God is your champion in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, God is your champion on the last day when death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. You see it on the day that the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and God will champion you. He will be your champion. He will champion your cause if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do not, you will drown in the sea of God's destruction. Pure and simple. So friend, theologically speaking, the sea is still parted. The sea is still parted. You can walk out of your life of bondage to sin and death into a new life with the Lord, if you will. And so I plead with you, before the waters of God's judgment come upon you, 
which they surely will if you don't trust Jesus. I plead with you to flee to the champion of your salvation who will defeat your great enemies as you repent and believe. Let us pray. Lord our God, I pray for faith for all of us, for those who've known it before that we renew our faith, that in the face of the ultimate enemy death, we would be strong and courageous. And I pray for those who've never known faith, that you would gift them with a new heart to reach out to you in faith just now. In Jesus' name, amen.